0: I'm going to ask you to turn to Numbers chapter 35 this morning. Numbers 35. One of the points from our study of the sixth word of the Decalogue has to do with the word that is used. The word that is translated in Exodus twenty thirteen, Thou shalt not murder. We came to verse... Thirty numbers, thirty-five. If anyone kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death at the evidence of witnesses. But no person shall be put to death on the testimony of one witness. And I mentioned that the word that is used there in Exodus is used almost exclusively of taking another person's life unlawfully. Only once is it used in the context of capital punishment, which is here. And there are several verses, several words rather, in verse 30 that are translated either put to death or kill or murder. We've got multiple words in the Old Testament for the taking of life. And this is in the context in Numbers 35 of the city of refuge. city of refuge is a place where if you took the life of another person accidentally you could go to that city of refuge and the judges could determine, decide, based upon witnesses, whether or not it truly was a case of accidental death, involuntary manslaughter, or in another case, if the person was not worthy of death, those judges would be able to determine in that place. And that verse specifies verse 30, no person shall be put to death on the testimony of one witness. So this has to be a fact. The person has done what uh, it is claimed that they have done, that they've murdered and taken life. Now one of the concerns that I mentioned during the course of the message last week was just that with regard to murder, with regard to the taking of life, there is a concern in scripture not just of how that sin impacts the family of the one who died or other people friends but for how that sin relates to God and the purity of the nation in which that sin has been committed i made the statement at the beginning of the message last week that our nation has shattered this commandment and That's not just a manward issue. If you kill someone, obviously it's wrong to do. It has impact for the person, their family, and so forth. But ultimately, that command, you must not kill, is a command that God gave. And so when you sin, when you break the command, you're sinning against God. It's just like if you were to commit adultery yes, you're sinning against yourself and that other person, but you're also sinning against God. And we don't tend to think in terms of that sin against God. But David, in Psalm 51, remember when God convicted him of his sin, he said, against you, you only, I have sinned. He was emphasizing the reality that he'd sinned against God. Now, this chapter not only deals with that issue and provides for, in the case of an accidental death, a place for the person to run and be and be safe. But let's keep on reading. Look at verse 31. Moreover, you shall not take a ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall surely be put to death. Okay, so there isn't another possibility of how that is to be dealt with. Verse 32 You shall not take ransom for him who has fled to his city to refuge, that he may return to live in the land before the death of the priest. So you shall not pollute the land in which you are. For blood pollutes the land. And I think the idea there is, of course, bloodshed. When someone's blood is shed, when someone is killed, blood pollutes the land, and no expiation can be made for the land for the blood that is shed on it, except by the blood of him who shed it. That's the only way that recompense can be made, that justice can be served. Blood must be shed. Now God obviously can govern that, but he's given human government the responsibility to do that. Genesis chapter 9, following the flood, whoever sheds man's blood by man shall his blood be shed. That's an authorization, not just of mayhem and revenge, but for government to deal with that crime. And notice what he says, verse 34, you shall not defile the land in which you live, in the midst of which I dwell, for I, the Lord, am dwelling in the midst of the sons of Israel. So there's an additional reason for Israel's sake that God dwells in this land. This is the holy land because God dwells there and this land was to be kept pure and to shed blood to murder was to pollute the land. And he says no expiation can be made. In other words, there's no recompense that can be made except dealing with things in the way that he specified. And... I think you could see in Scripture multiple times where God avenges bloodshed. God himself. He either specifies that it must be done or he himself does it. When Jesus was speaking in the Gospels to the Jews, in his famous denunciation of the Pharisees, the scribes, the hypocrites, as he calls them, he says, Behold, Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. And he says this, So that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. In other words, payday someday. All of that bloodshed, that innocent blood that was shed, the, the, the spokesman who came from God to preach to the people, when they killed them, and you can look through the Old Testament as far as what was done to prophets, but when they were killed for just declaring the word of God, God says there's going to be a response to that. Psalm 106, verse 34 Chronicles the coming of Israel into the land and their failure to do in the land what God told them to do in that holy war. Psalm 106, it says, they did not destroy the peoples as God had commanded them to because of the sin in the land. That's why Israel was sent into the land because of the abominations that were going on in the land of Israel. Israel was to go in Israel was to conquer, but instead of doing what God said, they did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them, but they mingled with the nations and learned their practices and served their idols, which became a snare to them. They even sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons and shed innocent blood. The blood of their sons and their daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with the blood. So part of the pollution came from their false... Religion, for their idolatry. And God, in His justice, was going to deal with that. He did deal with that in the days following Manasseh. In 2 Kings chapter 24, I reference this verse. Jehoiakim is the king of Israel, but God sent Nebuchadnezzar against Israel. He also sent Chaldeans, Arameans, Moabites, Ammonites. It says in 2 Kings 24, So he sent them against Judah to destroy it, according to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken through his servants, the prophets. Surely at the command of the Lord, it came upon Judah to remove them from his sight because of the sins of Manasseh. This is several generations prior. Why? It says, according to all that he had done, and also for the innocent blood which he shed, for he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood. And it is a sobering thing what the end of that verse says. It says, and the Lord would not forgive. So all of the idolatry that involved human sacrifice in the days of Manasseh, even though Manasseh repented, and the following generations there was... Some unrepentant, but there were some godly kings. But in the days of Jehoiakim, all of that bloodshed had to be accounted for. That's God's dealing with his own people, the people that he covenanted with. Do you think he's not going to deal with the rest of the earth? No, in fact, the very context of their coming into Canaan was his dealing with those seven nations of Canaan. The sins of those nations... That is why Israel went in. Now, we could say there were other reasons God had promised the land to them. But the reason that he sent them in, in holy war, rather than purchasing that tract of land from all of those peoples, was because of the sin of those nations. And those lives that were taken in war, commanded by God, Taken right out into eternity, they fell because of the righteous judgment, the wrath of God. You shall not kill. You must not kill. I think the command, as it's stated, as it's translated, thou shalt not murder, as I've said, the word is broader than that. And while we would certainly say the command forbids murder, it also protects the sanctity of life. There's not a distinction in the law, although there would be a distinction in punishments. There's not a distinction between murder and manslaughter. That word covers both. Both are forbidden. Murder with malice aforethought would have a different consequence. That would be manslaughter. Excuse me, then manslaughter. Murder would be, the person would be capital, uh, put to death, capital punishment. Someone who had killed someone accidentally Without malice aforethought, they could run to the city of refuge. They could have mercy. That command is just by way of review. The sixth word, you must not kill, uh, does not apply to the lawful taking of life. I already referenced the issue of just war, also capital punishment, also self-defense, and it doesn't have anything to do with the killing of animals. And we began to consider... Then that sixth word, you must not kill, not only prohibits the unlawful taking of human life, but it also prohibits the sins of the heart that lead to it. And I almost don't want to state it that narrowly, but I hope you'll understand that this commandment, you must not kill, as Jesus applied it, Jesus applied it in a way that I think we need to remember the whole law uh, is written, and actually the reality of the law is, is that it's spiritual. When, when, When God said, you shall not commit adultery, he wasn't talking about just the act of adultery. He was talking about the sins of the heart that lead to that. And so, when God said, you shall not murder, or you must not kill... Certainly, that applies to murder. We didn't even consider the ways in which the Bible details circumstances in which murder occurs. Even if the person is not the person, so to speak, who holds the sword, there can still be responsibility. In other words, the command protects the sanctity of life. But if there is malice aforethought, but that malice is not actually, the person is not themselves taking the sword, that they may still be responsible. I think we understand that. I'll just give some context to hopefully uh, draw that out. Uh, Thomas Watson, in his work on the Ten Commandments, described ten ways that people can murder. Most of these are from Scripture. Scripture. There's murder with the hand where someone themselves takes a sword, as Joab did, and killed Amasa. If you read that story in Second Samuel, it appears that Joab, who had been the commander of the armies of Israel under David, but now Amasa is because Joab has lost his position, but Joab is still among the military elite. And Amasa had served for Absalom for a period of time that Joab takes matters into his own hands literally and kills Amasa. It was envy. It was jealousy. This man had taken his position. There may have been other motives as well, but he murdered him with his own hand. He came to him and grabbed his beard and took him. And as a friend would, it looked like he probably was going to give him a hug, but instead he took a sword and he killed him. There's also in Scripture murder that can take place in the mind. We've already talked about that. But can my words or can a person's words lead to the taking of someone's life? What did Pilate ask? He said, what accusation do you bring against this man referring to Jesus? And they said, If this man were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him to you. Now, they couldn't justify that he was actually an evildoer. The only thing they could claim was that he claimed to be the Messiah, which he was. But it was their words that took him to Pilate, and we'll consider Pilate too, but it was their words and their charge against Jesus that eventually led to his death. Now, we know God was sovereign in that, but it was their words. Can false words spoken of someone else lead to their death? Yes, false witnesses. And even beyond that, you can see sometimes in our world that words themselves lead to the death of other people. In 1994, you may remember the genocide in Rwanda. A newspaper article following that time produced a story called Hateful Words, a War Crime. There were two groups of people. There was a minority, the Hutus, and a majority, the Tutsis. And they were at odds with one another politically. And on April 6th of 1994, the president, who was a Hutu, was his plane was shot down and it was said to be the other tribe that did it. And so they began responding to uh, this other tribe with violence and for about three months there was violence perpetrated against this other tribe. And part of what was going on during that time was not just the barbaric warfare between those two, but there were radio stations and at least one newspaper that were producing words to promote the violence there were two radio stations one was called radio machete another one was called hate radio that's what they became to be known as and they were promoting violence against this other tribe and the result was 800,000 people in just three three months lost their lives What was the cause? Well, you would say that people who actually picked up machetes or picked up guns or whatever were responsible for the murder. But what about the people who were on the airwaves telling people to take the lives of their fellow citizens? And that's why eventually three media executives were arrested and charged with committing and inciting genocide, war crimes, and persecution. The judgment was, and I'm quoting here, you were fully aware of the power of words and you used the radio, the medium of communication with the widest public reach to disseminate hatred and violence. Without a firearm, machete, or any physical weapon, you caused the death of thousands of innocent civilians. Murder with the tongue. Promoting it. Watson says you can commit murder with a pen. Remember David's letter? He had done everything that he could to try to get his sin with Bathsheba covered up. But in the end, when he couldn't, he wrote a letter. And he sent that letter by the hands of Uriah himself to Joab. That letter said, withdraw from Uriah when you go into battle. Now, the Lord identified the exact sword because he said to David when Nathan came and rebuked him, he said, why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, have taken his wife to be your wife. Well, how could that be true? David didn't do it. David just gave the letter. Joab was the one who withdrew, but it wasn't even Joab who killed him. What does the Lord said say? It says, you killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. David was not the direct actor in terms of taking Uriah's life, but his, it was, he, was, he bore the responsibility. It was David who wrote the letter. It was David who caused that to happen. Jezebel wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal, sent letters to the elders, the Scripture says, and to the nobles who were living with Naboth in his own city. She wrote in those letters, Proclaim a fast and seat Naboth at the head of the people and seat two worthless men before him and let them testify against him, saying, You've cursed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. What's the motive? Well, a sullen husband who's not happy. A wicked woman who has no principles except she knew how to get away with it in a way that looked like justice. She actually took Israel's political uh, system, the, the, the legal system, and she abused it. And so she plotted Naboth's death. And God, of course, brought consequence for Ahab and Jezebel, partly for that sin, partly for their idolatry. So even if a person doesn't use the sword... Even if they were to use a legal system, they can still be guilty of murder in the eyes of God. I don't know that there's an instance in Scripture where poison is used. It's said that the emperor Commodus killed him, uh, his wife killed him by putting poison in his cup. I became aware a number of years ago, a town where my brother lives, There was a man who I don't know what he had against his wife, but he decided to slowly put something in her drinks day after day. She said something kind of tasted funny, a little bitter. She's drinking coffee, other carbonated beverages from time to time over the course of several weeks, and something just tasted different. Was it the water? She didn't know. Looks under the sink, and there's some weed killer. That wasn't normally there. And after those several weeks, she finally called the police. And after investigation, they realized that her husband was putting that weed killer in her drinks, trying to take her life. That was more direct. You could look at Herod, Pharaoh, both who gave an order to have children killed. Herod was after Jesus. Pharaoh, of course, was after. Subduing the nation of Israel, but using the political system to accomplish your will, putting people to death by means of commands, oppression. Remember in 1 Samuel when Saul attempted to kill David? Not just throwing the spear, he did do that. But prior to that, here's how he tried to kill David You can have my daughter to be your wife. And that sounds a little strange. Maybe his daughter had some kind of agenda or something. No, what was it? Well, Saul said or thought in his heart, the scripture says, my hand shall not be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. So here's David. He's fighting the wars of Israel against the Philistines. And to put a bigger target on his back, he gives him his daughter. And even at another time, gave him a task to prove his worth that actually sent him into a, a, a battle with the Philistines. This is a manipulation of circumstances to put someone in harm's way. Remember Paul when he stood before Stephen? He says in Acts chapter 22, verse 20, when the blood of your witness Stephen was being shed, I also was standing by approving and watching out for the coats of those who were slaying him. Was there responsibility there? Yes. Paul recognized that he was partly responsible for the death of Christians. Not because he threw the stones, but because he was there. He was approving. He gave his voice. And Pilate, remember, tried to wash his hands of the blood of Jesus. But ultimately, he was the Roman procurator, and what he said went. It was his rule. It was his authority. But when he realized he had a riot on his hands, he felt as though he needed to do something. And so in a travesty of justice, he gave Jesus over to the executioners. And so he didn't hinder the crowd and its motivation and its moving in a direction that called for the unlawful taking of the life of Christ. In Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 6, the scripture says, No man shall take the nether or the upper millstone for pledge, for he taketh a man's life to pledge. These are two stones that ground grain, And if someone owed someone money, those stones were valuable enough that they could be taken as a pledge. But God said, you're not to take that as a pledge because that's a person's, you could kind of say it this way, it's their bread and butter. It's what enables them to make their money. And so a person could be unmerciful and take away what a person needs for their very life. That's why you could also not take a person's garment As a pledge and keep it overnight, either. God said that garment needs to be returned. If they are so poor that all they have is a garment to give you, that you need to return it by evening so they have the ability to be warm at night. What about a judge who has someone who is a criminal worthy of death come before him and he refuses to execute judgment? and lets that criminal go free, and then that person that he let go free does what he did before. Is there responsibility? And you would say, well, that, that isn't quite murder, what the judge is doing, but does he bear responsibility? The answer is yes. Would he be charged with murder? He's not complicit in the murder, but the fact is he was the one who allowed that one to go free. We could think of many other ways, but I'm trying to draw out, and I think Watson did a helpful thing in that he drew out other possibilities in which someone is responsible for bloodshed. They may not be the one who used the sword, who pulled the trigger, so to speak, but there's a responsibility there before God. And I, just by way of application. is this, this whole subject raises, of course, an issue for us of how we think about murder. We certainly see it in our nation. We see it in our world. Does it bother us? Does it weigh on your heart when you hear of bloodshed? We could get so accustomed to this that it really doesn't matter so much to us. It's just part of the daily news. Isaiah 33, verse 15 says, He who walks righteously and speaks with sincerity, he who rejects unjust gain and shakes his hands so that they hold no bribe, he who stops his ears from hearing about bloodshed and shuts his eyes from looking upon evil, he will dwell on the heights. His refuge will be the impregnable rock. His bread will be given him. His water will be sure. The idea of when you see something horrific, you want to turn your eyes away. You don't want to see that. You don't want to hear about it. What is going on in our world and in our nation today is not a turning away of the ears. It's not a turning away of the eyes. It's actually a looking straight on, in some cases, smiling about it. Our our nation is certainly preoccupied with entertaining ourselves with it and become very desensitized to it. A celebration of death, glorification of gore, And all of that is being promoted to our further degradation and depravity. Lost people, lost people are sending letters of complaint to the FCC about things that are going on, whether in television or commercials. I'm not going to read for the sake of shock value anything that was reported about this AMC series called The Walking Dead, which is in its I don't know what season. And honestly, it'd be too disgusting to do so. But I would say if something like that is part of your entertainment, you need to search your heart. You need to remember that man is made in God's image. To strike at that image is sin. To glorify the striking of that image is sin. So how do we feel about it? Do we have a righteous heart which would be just horrified that something like that would take place? We could talk about entertainment. We could talk about video games. And for the sake of not glorifying that any further, just understand God's word says you must not kill. Now you would say, well, the Bible records murders. Yes, it does. And in the context that it does, as it does, we also have the very same context that says you must not, and there are consequences. This certainly applies to killing the unborn. We've just had an extended study of the subject of abortion in adult Christian life hour. We could go to Exodus 21. I'm just asking you to turn there briefly. Exodus 21, verse 22. If men struggle, verse 22 says, Exodus 21, if men struggle with each other and strike a woman with child so that she gives birth prematurely, yet there is no injury, he shall surely be fined as the woman's husband may demand of him. And he shall pay as the judges decide. Okay, What's the injury? The injury would be to the child. Certainly the woman as well, but to the child. But if there's any further injury... Then you shall appoint as penalty, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for uh, foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. The point is that there is to be retribution, legally, if the life of that child is taken. There's a law currently before the Virginia legislature, I'm not sure at what stage it is, it's called Caleb's Law. There was a woman who was driving, someone was running from the police, driving 90 miles per hour, hit her. The child, who was six months along at that point, she was carrying, died. She did not die. And as a result, because of the laws in Virginia, the driver was not charged with the death of the child. And so, in the midst of all the surgeries that she's having to have as a consequence of the accidents, She contacted her state senator and eventually was interviewed by the Senate Judiciary Committee of Virginia to give her story. She spoke to them and she said, I'm quoting here, As I sit before you today with the inability to walk, still recovering from surgery number 17, Do you want to know what the most traumatic piece of my story is? It's not the 17 surgeries, it's not even the six months rehabilitation, nor is it the millions of dollars in medical debt. It was the exact moment, she said, that the Commonwealth looked at me and informed me that she was unable to process charges for the loss of my child. No retribution. An ACLU of Virginia representative video-conferenced at the same hearing and said, we strongly oppose, I'm quoting here, the Senate bill that they're considering because it would grant independent personhood rights to fetuses with serious implications to the constitutional rights of all pregnant people. Moreover, it adds charges for accidents when someone does not even know an individual is pregnant is in violation of long-standing principles, criminal law, and has no benefit to public safety. What about Caleb? What about this little boy who never got to see light? Now, I'm not saying that the person running from police should be charged with murder. That was not his intent, but that certainly would be manslaughter. It would be involuntary manslaughter, but it would still be manslaughter. And apparently, the way the law was written, it didn't account for that kind of a circumstance, unfortunately. And that's why Taylor, the woman whose child was killed, and others are trying to see that happen in Virginia. (laughs) Exodus covers that. God already covered that. If they would just see what God has said and judge justly. We could consider euthanasia, which is so-called mercy killing. The act of putting someone to death who's suffering from some incurable, distressing disease. Sometimes in this country it's called physician-assisted dying, and I don't know if you're aware that we have multiple states in our nation where it's permissible according to the law. But there's a God in heaven who has said, Deuteronomy 32, see now that I, I am he, and there is no God besides me. It is I who put to death and give life. It is I who have wounded, and it is I who heal, and there is no one who can deliver from my hand. God's the author of life. He's the taker of life. If you take life into your own hands in that way, unless you're human government and you have a just cause to do so, you're doing something that's a sin against God. And no, we don't want to see the suffering of loved ones. But does God ever ordain suffering? Yes, he does. Does he have a purpose in doing so? Yes. We read Job, we read many parts of the scripture, and we say, yes, even even in this world, someone suffering from a debilitating, painful disease, living on for years, is that God's purpose and will? Sometimes it is. not. doesn't make it easy. But I can't take God's prerogative into my hands. Certainly, the commandment, you must not kill or you shall not murder, applies to suicide. Which you could call self-murder termination of one's own life it's just as wrong to kill yourself as it is to take someone else's unlawfully you are made in god's image god does have a plan for your life and he's sovereign over your life it's not your right to take your life there's something larger at stake and it does have to do with the image of god and god's purpose for your life one writer said, while well, the Bible never explicitly condemns suicide, and that, that just means, I'm not saying the command doesn't apply, it never says just that. He said, every instance of suicide in the Bible is directly associated with a person's spiritual collapse from Saul to Judas. The biblical attitude toward human life is so affirmative that an explicit condemnation of suicide is unnecessary. Its evil is self-evident. Saul, Ahithophel, Zimri, one of the kings of Israel, Judas. Now, we could certainly say dark thoughts come to every person. You can be hopeless. That is, you can be in a situation where you don't see reasons for hope. But God is a God of hope. And for someone to conclude that there is no hope is really to deny the existence of the God who is the God of hope. God can... Restore beauty for ashes. God can totally change a circumstance around. And I would just be cautious, careful, if someone were to express that desire to take their own life to you, that you ought to take them seriously, you ought to get them some help right away, you ought to tell them it would be wrong to take your life, it would be sinful to do so. It is. But don't just leave it there. Tend to them or help someone else Who can help them, tell them. You matter to God. You matter to other people. You might not think you do, but you do. And you'll also answer to God. And I would hate for the very last thing that a person does in this life to be an act of disobedience to God. There is hope. For Elijah there was hope. Remember sometimes people call Elijah the suicidal prophet. Turn to 1 Kings chapter 19. He was not suicidal. 1 Kings 19. After that account of victory, you might say, on Mount Carmel where he prayed and fire came down from heaven, God accepted his sacrifice, the prophets of Baal were slain, which was according to the law. Verse 1, 1 Kings 19, now Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with a sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and even more if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And he was afraid and arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree. And he requested for himself that he might die and said, It is enough now, O Lord, take my life, for I am not better than my father's. I want you to notice the end, the middle there, verse 4. It says, and he requested for himself that he might die. Now, he wanted to die, but he was asking God. And we even have his words. He says, it's enough now, O Lord, take my life. Take me. And you might have prayed that prayer. That might have been the desire of your heart. But you know what God had for Elijah? He had more work for him to do. He had more service for him to give. And if God has left you on planet Earth and he doesn't take your life, he has more for you to do. What did Elijah need? Well, in part, he needed sleep. That's apparent. He slept for a while, he needed food. God gave him that. And he needed restoration, he needed care. And God, in His mercy, cared for that prophet. And God, in His grace and mercy, will care for you too. Would you come to Him? Would you look to Him? No, Elijah was not suicidal. He wanted God to take him home, but if God didn't take him home, there's something else that God had for him to do. And in Elijah's case, it was to get some help. He gave him Elisha to come alongside and pour water on his hands, as the Scripture says. And now here's someone who takes the mantle, literally, and serves the Lord and follows the generation of a mighty prophet with another mighty prophet generation by the power of God. But no, it's, it's a sin to take your own life. And again, I would say if dark thoughts come to you or you know those dark thoughts are coming to someone else and they express that to you, even have already communicated how they're going to take their life, that, that person just needs help and they need hope. Now, I'm not just talking to the world here. I'm talking to God's people. I can't say that those thoughts are only outside. No, they're inside. And sometimes when we face them, we need someone to come and minister God's word to us. And if you ever got in that circumstance, please reach out. Don't take that all to yourself. Don't let those dark thoughts continue. There is hope. There's hope. There's help. God gives grace some of us could testify. Circumstances in our life seem hopeless. How did God turn them around? God did turn them around. I, I really, w- without going back over everything that Jesus taught there in the Sermon on the Mount, although that would be good review for us, wouldn't it? I just want to consider the issue of this murder in the heart. Sinful anger, hatred, hate-filled words and actions. You must not kill, thou shalt not murder. Jesus, as he applied that, he dealt with the spirituality of the law. He He applied it to those things that are either said that come from a heart of hatred or even the anger itself, the bitterness, the heat, the passion. Jesus said, I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. The idea is liable in a court of law just for that internal attitude, that in and of itself is sin. As the pastors, Christian teachers who formulated that Westminster Confession that has been repeated and used in other confessions, they they looked at this commandment. They said, what are the sins forbidden in the sixth commandment? The sins uh, forbidden in the sixth commandment are all taking away the life of ourselves or of others except in the case of public justice, lawful war, or necessary defense, the neglecting or withdrawing the lawful and necessary means of preservation of life, sinful anger, hatred, envy, desire of revenge, all excessive passions. And they went on. There were more applications. But this command goes to the heart And it deals with those sins that if they are allowed to fester and grow in the heart, yes, they could result in actually taking someone else's life. This is what someone called the inside-out rule. It's not just the things that are done outwardly. It's the things that are done inwardly. And even if they never come out, there's still sin that takes place. That's why John says in 1 John that whoever hates his brother, is a murderer. And so anger is one of those things that when we have it in our hearts, unjust anger, it's not intense displeasure against sin, it's intense displeasure because I'm selfish, I want something, somebody else has done something to me and my anger is seething. Or maybe it's just settled and nobody else sees it, but it's still there. One writer described different kinds of anger. He described it in terms of irritability. And I'm just going to read his words here. This is David Powlison from an article called Anger in Action. Irritable, irritability is anger on a low simmer. Do you live with someone who is easily set off or are you grouchy? Okay, So we have to ask that question of ourselves. Another kind is Disagreeability, arguing, he says arguing is the disagreeable he said, she said of interpersonal friction. Anger is the emotion that inhabits interpersonal conflict and it takes two for a fight. Bitterness expresses how anger can last a long, long time. People recycle old hurts, nurse grievances and grudges and never get over it. Violence expresses the sheer destructiveness of angry behavior. Anger can hurt, destroy, and even kill, finding pleasure in inflicting pain. Then he describes passive anger, which hides behind surface appearances and beneath conscious awareness. As long as it's undetectable by the person who is angry, it remains inadmissible and unaddressable. And then he addresses self righteous anger as well, which he says enjoys the empowering feeling of getting in touch with honest emotion and expressing it freely. It feels good to let it out, and it often gets results. Are you angry? Are you an angry person? Have you been wronged? Have you been sinned against? Are you nursing a grudge? Are you living in bitterness? Proverbs says, "He who is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who is quick-tempered exalts folly." A man's discretion, Proverbs 19 says, makes him slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook a transgression. Ecclesiastes 7:9. Do not be an- eager in your heart to be angry, for anger resides in the bosom of fools. Ephesians 4:31 and 32. Let all bitterness, let all bitterness. Which is resentment, the idea of nursing grudges, and wrath, which is rage or intense feeling of anger, and anger, which is that state of anger that sometimes is long standing, and clamor, which is shouting in anger, and slander, which is abusive speech or speaking of, of, of others. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. Put it away along with all malice. That's the idea of being hateful. You ever been described as being hateful? That hateful feeling? This hostility that's expressed in words and actions? Put it away. Put it away. Repent. Turn from it. You say it's hard. Yes, our flesh is wicked and sinful. And our father, prior to God, was a murderer himself. This is not easy. It cuts right against our flesh. But God, by his spirit, can actually produce love so that we can, as he says in Ephesians 4.32, be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Those things are to be put away. Why? Yes, they're the seeds of murder, but they're also sinful in and of themselves. We know that we have passed out of death into life, John says, because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. If you follow the argument there, John is not talking about the actual physical murder of another person. John is saying that hatred of a brother, if there's hatred in your heart for a brother and it continues on, if it's not repented of, he says that person who lives that way, that's their life, they don't have eternal life. That's one of the signs of eternal life when you find yourself loving other people because God, by his spirit, indwells you and his spirit produces that love. Now, I'm not saying one instance of hatred, but I'm saying that as a way of life. And I think you just have to examine yourself and say, when I look at my own life, what is true of me? And if I struggle with some of those sins that are mentioned in Ephesians 4.31, Lord, change me. Help me to put that out of my life. It has no place in the life of a Christian. Anger, verbal abuse, physical abuse, violence, that should never be in the church of Jesus Christ. If it's found there, it needs to be repented of. If you find it in your life, you need to repent of it. That's going on between husbands and wives. You need to repent. You need to turn from your sin. You need to stop the conflict. You need to recognize that that's a sign in and of itself of someone who will not inherit the kingdom of God. Parents and children... Whatever the relationship is, if that anger and hatred and that abusive speech, if it's coming out of your mouth, turn from it. One way that can motivate you to do that is to consider how merciful God has been to you. Why should I forgive the person who's wronged me? Because God has forgiven you for all of your sins. All of them. And if you're holding on to the things that someone has done to you, whether someone in your own home or somewhere else, if you're holding on to those things and you're not forgiving, you're not seeing the mercy of God to you. You're not acknowledging it. You're not believing it. Because when you realize the enormity of mercy that has been shown to you, it makes it a lot easier to forgive other people. I'm not saying it's easy. It's not easy because of our flesh. And I, I, I'm not a betting person, but I would, I would say that there are people in their heart right now, and you're just wrestling am I going to forgive? Think about God's mercy to you. Think about his mercy and how, how kind he is to not hold those transgressions against you. How wonderful it is that he is willing to wash them as white as snow. Cleanse you from all your iniquity. Not hold those things against you. Would you be willing to turn that corner today in your life? Jesus died for us because the Father sent him. The Father is willing to forgive. If you've trusted in Jesus and you understand the gospel, you understand enough, God has forgiven my sins but it's, it's the application of that. It's as he's forgiven you, then you forgive other people. You know what Ephesians 5.1 says? So be imitators of God. God is forgiven. Be an imitator of God. May the Lord help us. What did Jesus say? Blessed are the merciful. They will receive mercy. Let's pray. Lord, you know every heart. And you're the, you're the only one, Lord, who can apply this truth in the right way. By your Spirit, we ask that you would. Lord, we pray that we would turn from our sins. And if there's someone even here today who has yet to bow the knee to Jesus Christ and turn from their sins and find forgiveness, full and free, Lord, help them to do so today. Maybe there's somebody here, Lord, who they understand that you're a forgiving God and that you're a merciful God, but they've been sinned against and sometimes repeatedly in an aggravated way. But Lord, help them again to see how they have sinned in an aggravated way to you and be able to practice that forgiveness based upon grace. This is not easy, Lord. It's, we're so sinful. We're so fleshly. But we thank you that you're able. And we pray that you'd overcome. By your grace, give us help, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.